0: Welcome to the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Engaging the Experts, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Dr. Travis Carlson, and I'll be your host today. I'm an assistant professor at High Point University School of Pharmacy. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Kelly Ravelis, an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin College of Pharmacy. We are faculty for an educational initiative titled Existing and Emerging Clostridioides Difficile Infection Therapies, Importance of Microbiome Restoration. It is supported by an educational grant from Farin Pharmaceuticals Inc. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get started. Dr. Ravelis, in our previous podcast episode, we discussed the current epidemiology of C. difficile infection, or CDI, and the use of microbiome-targeted therapies to prevent CDI recurrences. Can you please give us a brief introduction on the current state of CDI and its treatment landscape?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, currently, C. difficile is one of only five microorganisms classified by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as an urgent public health threat. Now, this classic classification is based on C. diff being a very difficult to treat infection with a very large patient and healthcare system burden. It's estimated that we have just under half a million cases and 30,000 deaths annually in the U.S. due to C. difficile infection and about half of these cases develop in the community setting and about half in or associated with the healthcare setting. Now, one of the biggest challenges we have with C. diff infection is the risk for recurrences. A recurrence is common because the gut microbiome of patients with C. diff is disrupted, and then we give them antibiotics that continue to disrupt our normal gut microbes, and given these conditions, any remaining C. diff spores in the gut can germinate after we take off those C. diff antibiotics and ultimately result in clinical infection again. So it's estimated that about a quarter of patients with an initial C. diff episode will experience a recurrence, and of those, up to 65% will experience additional recurrences. Now, the standard of care for C. diff infection is sole antibiotic therapy. So antibiotics like and oral vancomycin, kill those actively growing uh, C.G.F. bacteria. And in more recent clinical practice guideline updates, fideximycin is favored because of its lower rates of recurrence that we're seeing in clinical trials. And this is really due to the the more narrow spectrum of activity that preserves more of our, our good healthy microbes in the gut. And we also have bezloteximab, which is a monoclonal antibody, and it is also now guideline recommended in the the recent iteration of the IDSA guidelines as early as the first CDI episode in certain high-risk patients, again, because of its ability to reduce recurrence rates. Now, because recurrences are so tightly linked to the microbiome, though, there has been a lot of interest in using microbiome restoration therapies to prevent recurrences. Now, these can include whole microbiome restoration uh, with products like traditional fecal microbiota transplantation or some newer live biotherapeutic products like rebiota. Or the other approach is to use a more targeted approach where we supplement a defined microbial community like with probiotics or another new live biotherapeutic product called VAUST. Now, Dr. Carlson, we seem to get a lot of questions on the use of of probiotics uh, nowadays. So what do you think is the current place of therapy for probiotics?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, it may or may not be surprising to you, but there are a a lot of data looking at the efficacy of probiotics and the safety of probiotics for preventing C. difficile infection. I'm just going to quote a meta-analysis here of 31 randomized. Control trials, looking at probiotics for only primary prevention of C. diff infection. So these are patients that are at risk of developing C. diff infection, but they've never had CDI before. So we're just trying to prevent it from occurring. These could be patients um, on, taking broad-spectrum antibiotics that are certainly at risk of developing C. diff infection. And uh, what they concluded in this meta-analysis is that The data in fatality actually seem to favor probiotics in terms of reducing the rate of C. difficile infection. However, it's quite interesting when you break down those studies and actually stratify them by how uh, uh, common or how often CDI occurred in the placebo group. Those results weren't as profound if the study had a low baseline incidence of C. difficile infection. And let me go a little bit further into that to explain it. So in the studies where there were a C. diff risk of greater than 5% in the placebo group, and that might not seem like a lot. But that means that 5% of the patients that are on broad-spectrum antibiotics, for example, in the hospital, end up developing C. difficile infection during the hospital stay. That's uh, very high. And I certainly hope for your patient's sake that that doesn't occur at your institution. In those high-risk situations, probiotics did seem to be favored. However, in the case where there is a low baseline CDI incidence, in between 0 and 2% there wasn't any added benefit of giving patients probiotics. And in that category includes the largest randomized control trial to date, which is known as the placebo trial. It was published in Lancet in 2013, and it enrolled almost 3,000 patients and randomized them to either a multi-species probiotic product consisting of lactobacilli and bifidobacteria or placebo. And in their uh, control or in their uh, placebo group, the CDI rate was 1.2%. And while the the probiotics um, slightly lowered that to 0.8%, that difference was not deemed to be significantly different. So I think you have to consider what your population is, how high risk of a population you have before you are going to be able to determine if probiotics are um, going to be effective. And speaking of the the different types of probiotics that are used in these clinical trials, some of them use multi-species product, like in the PLACEDE trial, um, and the range of species that were included in these products ranged anywhere from one all the way to eight. The majority of these randomized controlled trials included single species product, and several of them were Saccharomyces species Several others were lactobacillus species. Some included bifidobacterium species, and then uh, and then even some others included the streptococcus species called streptococcus therbophilus. And it's quite hard to tell whether or not one is more effective than the other because just like with FMT clinical trials in the past, these RCTs are quite heterogeneous. Not to mention that since the FDA doesn't provide oversight of these products as they're, as they're considered dietary supplements, we don't really know uh, how much of any given species is in the product, nor do we know if it's consistent from lot to lot. And so it's quite hard to say if there's any one species that's more effective than the other. The species that I just mentioned are the most commonly uh, used in these clinical trials. I will say that Dr. Ravellis has mentioned this before, our gut microbiota is a very diverse place. There's many, many species of bacteria. And so... Theoretically, logically, it makes the most sense to me to provide something that has multiple species in it that really looks like a healthy gut microbiome, which includes Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes species. But again, they haven't really been able to parse out which species is perhaps the best. That's efficacy. In terms of safety, Probiotics are pretty safe and adverse effects are relatively uncommon. The adverse effects that do occur are mild gastrointestinal side effects, which are to be expected. However, there has been concern in the past that these relatively innocent bacteria can be pathogenic in some patient populations, such as those who are immunocompromised, and there have been plenty of case reports documenting bloodstream infections, among other things, in immunocompromised patients that are taking saccharomyces species, probiotics, lactobacillus species, probiotics. And so they're not without risk. Interestingly, probiotics have been, is of course, studied for other indications. And there was a randomized control trial looking at the use of probiotics in patients with pancreatitis. and. One of the things that came out of that clinical trial was that patients that ended up passing away in the probiotic arm versus the placebo arm. And while I don't think that probiotics are going to cause excess mortality in C. diff patients, it's worth pointing out that just like antibiotics are not innocent bystanders, neither are probiotics. They're not without their risks. And so I think you really have to consider the patient population you're treating, whether or not there is unduly high risk of an infection due to that that species, and take that into consideration before you use probiotics for primary prevention. In terms of guideline recommendations, the American College of Gastroenterology guidelines do not recommend probiotics for primary prevention. Neither do the 2021 ESCNID guidelines. And the 2018 IDSA-SHE guidelines actually make no recommendations. So while there are data out there, these guideline committees feel as though the data isn't robust enough to make a firm um, recommendation. And part of that is if we do make a recommendation, which product do we recommend? And since the randomized control trials are so heterogeneous, it's really hard to do so. so At this point, you can't really make any strong recommendations for using probiotics for primary prevention. Dr. Ravellis, one of the common questions we hear is, why are probiotics not recommended by the guidelines? Despite some positive efficacy and safety data, but FMT is universally recommended by the guidelines.
1: Yeah, so Dr. Carlson, I think you had on some really excellent points, and so some of this, I, you know, I'm I'm just going to echo too. So, you know, we we do have some fairly promising evidence, especially in terms of efficacy for that primary prevention of C diff and those higher risk patients, but there are some limitations that have prevented really strong positive guideline recommendations. And so first, you touched on, you know, this pathophysiological perspective in C diff infections, and especially in recurrence we see these really major shifts in the whole microbial community in our patients with C. diff. And so those probiotics, again, may only contain a single or a few different microbial species or strains that may not be enough to restore the microenvironment back to one that's better suited to prevent C. diff recurrences. And then next is the quality of data. So, you know, we have had a lot of inconsistency in the findings of prior studies, and also a lot of potential for bias due to differences in study design, differences in population studies, even the definition of C. diff infection differs between studies. And then, of course, the differences in probiotic formulations, doses, and durations that you mentioned also. And there likely are many patient and probiotic specific characteristics that influence probiotic effectiveness, but it, this is really an understudied area. So, um, you know, that choosing the optimal strain, the optimal dose, and dosage form are really not very well understood at this time. And then lastly, as you mentioned, too, most probiotics are available as dietary supplements that are not subject to FDA approval or good manufacturing practices. So there is a lack of rigorous labeling standards. So, you know, the specific microbial strains or especially the microbial counts may not be reported or known. It's also possible that many orally delivered probiotics don't don't even make it past our acidic stomach down to the lower GI tract where, where they're actually needed to help prevent C. diff. Um, So unless the appropriate manufacturing process has been followed, like using enteric-coated capsules, there there could be some issues with actually getting the probiotics at the site where you need them. So overall, that that lack of rigorous efficacy data and oversight does give probiotics that weak quality of evidence. Now, in contrast, FMT, or fecal microbiota transplant, has been used for, for decades. And we have pretty robust data nowadays from randomized controlled trials that you know shows you know, just from that pathophysiological perspective that FMT can really successfully and durably restore the microbiome back to a much more you know, rich and diverse microbiome but it also has good efficacy data. So some of the observational studies, I mean, we've seen a sustained clinical response upwards of 90 percent in these patients with traditional FMT. And then, of course, we have um, some very robust uh, clinical trial data from some of our newer life biotherapeutic products. So so ultimately, you know, just the quality of data, I think is, is probably the primary reason that um, FMT is, is now, Guideline recommended specifically for recurrent C. diff infection, whereas probiotics uh, pretty much universally are, are not recommended by our guidelines. What's interesting about this, you know, even though the, the guidelines do not endorse probiotics for use, uh, I, I definitely still see many practitioners still prescribing probiotics, either for primary or secondary prevention of C. Diff infection. So, Dr. Carlson, do you feel like there's any populations that you would use probiotics in? And if so, um, which probiotic?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And Dr. Ravels, I'm glad you mentioned the use of probiotics for secondary CDF prevention. So I talked a lot about the data for primary prevention. The data for secondary prevention is actually pretty poor. There's a lot less data, and it doesn't seem that probiotics provide any benefit in patients with a history of CBI to prevent them from experiencing a recurrence. So I guess to start with, I would avoid using probiotics in patients with a history of CDI because it doesn't seem that it's doing the job. And that could be for a multitude of different reasons. I also mentioned uh, that that clinical trial regarding patients with pancreatitis that experienced excess mortality if they received probiotics. I probably wouldn't administer or recommend probiotics for somebody with active pancreatitis, although that's a pretty small subset of the patients we might be treating. Outside of that, it all comes down to the risk versus benefit uh, analysis that you yourself make. Of course, there are risks with probiotics, um, including anything all the way up to bloodstream infections due to these organisms. But At the end of the day, it's pretty rare, and it's going to be most likely to occur in somebody with where their gut epithelial barrier is has been damaged, and in patients with who are immunocompromised that don't have any immune system to fight against these organisms. So in that case, I would. If a patient really wanted to try a probiotic, I would educate them about the risks and probably try to discourage them from using probiotics, given that even for primary prophylaxis, the data aren't super strong. If a patient insists on receiving a probiotic or if if a physician regularly prescribes probiotics to their patients, I would at the very least ensure that they're timing it appropriately if they're on concurrent antibiotics. So obviously, if you administer a probiotic and then shortly after administer an antibiotic, it's certainly doing no good. Um, So there's a consideration with waiting an appropriate amount of time after antibiotics are administered to administer that probiotic to make sure that you're getting any potential benefit if there is any. And then I talked a little bit earlier about the theoretical and logical benefits of using a multi species product versus single species product. Because again, we're trying to replenish a very diverse uh, group of bacteria. I would avoid giving single strain species products. And hopefully we'll have some more robust data coming out. But uh, I think that's where I'm at at this point. Decker Veles, you mentioned that many commercially available probiotics are limited to a single or few microbial strains, but some newer microbiome targeted therapies are also limited in the microbes that they include. Can you tell us a little bit more about the difference between whole microbiome restoration versus more targeted, rationally designed combinations of microbes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I say whole microbiome restoration, you know, this typically refers to the installation of a a whole community or what we call a broad consortium of microbes into the intestinal tract of a patient. So this is traditionally accomplished with our traditional fecal transplant or similarly with a new live biotherapeutic product called Rebiota. So in these cases, whole donor stool is processed and administered to a patient. And so the the rationale for these whole microbiome restoration therapies is, is that we see those major disruptions in the microbiome of patients with C. diff infection, including an overall loss of microbial diversity and a loss of some of our, our core taxa from our major bacterial phylum. Uh, so these products have the advantage of restoring this, this broad consortium of microbes, including bacteria, as well as other commensal fungus and viruses that, that may also play a role in overall microbiome homeostasis and prevention of C. diff infection. Now, conversely, you can create a defined microbial community, particularly if you can mechanistically link it to the pathogenesis of C. diff infection and then combine those microbes to help prevent recurrences. So VAUST, uh, formerly known as CR109, is an example of this, where only bacterial spores from the Firmicutes phylum are prepared for oral delivery. And this product was really based on the premise that bacteria from the Firmicutes phylum plays a major role in preventing seed of colonization and germination. And so the advantage of a product like this is, is that theoretically there should be less risk of transmission of potential pathogens because that defined microbial community is administered after other potential pathogens and, and other non-spore-forming bacteria are eliminated. Now, the potential con is that other important microbes uh, are not replaced, right? Because we just have that defined microbial communities. That being said, though, you know, VAUS has, has really excellent efficacy data in preventing recurrent C. Diff. So this may or may not be a valid concern going forward. Now, now, one of the concerns with probiotics has been their, their safety in certain patient populations, particularly regarding the, the risk of infection in immunocompromised patients. So um, you mentioned a little bit about this previously with the risk uh, for, for bacteremia with probiotics, but do we have any data for these new live biotherapeutic products in these special populations, Dr. Carlson?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And... We do have some, I would like to see more. And I do, and I I think that real world data is gonna be so valuable to us to really understand how these products can best be used. VAUST, which was just approved this month, uh, April 2023, or last month now, it's May 1st, does not have any uh, data in immunocompromised patients. I mentioned the exclusion criteria in the previous episode of this podcast, but I'll briefly review them here. So for VAUS, patients were excluded if they had a known history of IBD, such as ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, those receiving concurrent intensive induction chemotherapy, radiotherapy or biologic treatment for active malignancy, and those with an ANC less than 500. Exclusion criteria were similar for the Rebiota Punch-CD3 study. However, uh, they've released preliminary results from an open-label study called Punch-CD3-OLS, standing for open-label study. And some of these preliminary results were uh, just presented at Ecmid 2023. So of the patients that they had already enrolled in, analyzed that there were 483 that received rebiota in this open-label setting. 18% of them, so 91 patients, had immunocompromising conditions. The exclusion criteria that they kept for this open-label study was a CD4 count less than 200 and an absolute neutrophil count less than 1,000. So those patients were still excluded from this open-label study. However, they were inclusive of patients with IBD, patients receiving immunocompromising medications that had immunocompromising conditions. So I'll go down the list of some of the characteristics here. There were some patients that were taking corticosteroids, there were uh, several patients that were taking other immunosuppressive medications, things like TNF-alpha inhibitors, other biologics, And then several patients had immunocompromising conditions, like patients with malignant tumors, immunodeficiency syndromes, HIV, et cetera. The promising news is that efficacy doesn't seem to be affected in immunocompromised patients. So numerically, rebiota seemed to perform similarly in these immunocompromised patients. But perhaps more importantly, the safety didn't seem to be affected. So treatment emergent adverse effects were reported in a similar proportion of participants that had immunocompromising conditions or were receiving immunocompromising medications versus those that were not. And the treatment emergent adverse effects that did occur were, again, mild to moderate nature, primarily gastrointestinal. There were no participants with these immunocompromising conditions that were reported to be experiencing bacteremia or fungemia. So again, that's kind of the worst case scenario. And there have been case reports documenting this in probiotics. So it's really important for us to establish that safety of these new live biotherapeutic products. And what we have thus far with this cd 3 open label study, it appears as though all things are looking good thus far. Again, I think real world data is super valuable. And so I look forward to learning more in the next several years. Dr. Revels, are there any other LBPs in development for CDI? And how about other indications?
1: Yeah. So there are actually several LBPs in development for C. Diff infections, but, but other indications as well. So this is a really hot area. Um, the two LBPs that are they're probably furthest along um, compared to our, our newly approved products are RBX2455 and VE303, and both of these products have completed phase two clinical trial data with uh, positive efficacy findings for preventing recurrences, and RBX2455 is uh, another broad consortium of microbes, kind of similar to Rebiota, um, so it's prepared from donor stool, but then it's uh, converted into a line polyophilized powder for oral capsule delivery. So instead of the, the enema delivery with Rebiota, this one would be an oral capsule delivery. And then VE 303 is a defined microbial community of eight different types of human commensal bacterial strains. And, and these were selected because they are known to provide C. diff colonization resistance. And this one is it's really cool in that it's produced from Bacterial cell banks. So it it doesn't rely on human donor material to to make the product. So that may be an advantage, at least from the manufacturing process. Now, there are some other defined microbial communities with phase one data as well. So keep an eye out for especially one called MET2. Now, disruption of the microbiome has been linked to many, many other health conditions from other enteric infections to inflammatory diseases, metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes and obesity and even cancer. And because of this, live biotherapeutic products are being studied for a wide range of diseases. And so some of the ones I just find really, really interesting are um, inflammatory bowel disease disease graft-versus-host disease, food allergies, and even neurologic and psychiatric conditions like autism and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases. Now, there's also a lot of really cool data in the oncology space using live biotherapeutic products to enhance the immune effects of certain immunotherapies like checkpoint inhibitors. And um, I even recently saw some data evaluating inhaled live biotherapeutic products for the treatment of chronic lung disease. So I I think this will be a really, really interesting therapeutic space to keep up with in the future. So keep an eye out on, on new data, not only in infectious diseases, but some of these other areas as well.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Ravelis. That is all we have time for. I want to again thank Dr. Ravellis for joining me today. And thank you all for tuning into this session of Engaging the Experts. Don't forget to check out our mid-year midday symposium and the Ask the Experts webinars on elearning.ashp.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.